Tonight, I'm going to present a shear on Lashon Hara, or rather on Shmir Salashin. But before I begin the uh, presentation, the shear, I'd like to I start with a story, a story of the Chavetz Chaim. Very interesting story. Uh, Rav Shon Shwadvan, he's the source of the story. He would say the story over. And the story goes as following. One of the best Bochram, one of the best students of the Yeshiva in Laden of the Chovetz Chaim, where the Chovetz Chaim, of course, was a Rosh Shiva, uh, it was Purim and he got very drunk. And uh, what happened is that <coughs> he came to the house of the Chovetz Chaim. Now, this was Purim, and the uh, Chovetz Chaim's house, there, was a lot, there were a lot of people, you know, standing there and, uh, of course, uh, watching the Chovetz Chaim. And... This student, who's one of the best students in yeshiva, <coughs> who was very drunk, <coughs> and he came to the Chavetz Chaim's house. <coughs> now the house was filled with people. And what he did is he pushed his way through the people, and he made his way up front. And uh, he pushed his way through the crowd, and he comes up to the front, and there's the Chavetz Chaim sitting at a table. And he says out loud, Rebbe, Rebbe, promise me that I can sit next to you in Ganeden. That's what he says. He's a, he's a student who's drunk. He goes running through the crowd, pushes his way up, and he says to the Chavetz Chaim, I want you to promise me that I'll be able to sit next to you in Gan Eden. In other words, to be in your heichal, your chamber, wherever, whatever level you're at. So the Chavetz Chaim answered him that, who knows if I have Gan Eden, how can I promise you? Classic humility of the Chavetz Chaim. But the student wouldn't stop. He kept on pleading, Rebbe, Rebbe, promise me that I will be next to you in Gan Eden. After a while, he kept on doing it incessantly, so the people around him trying to shove him away, because uh, truth was very embarrassing probably for the Chavetz Chaim. But the Chavetz Chaim saw that he was drunk, and he said, no, leave him alone. Leave him alone, let him be. As time went on, the uh, Chavetz Chaim got up. He got up to uh, leave to eat the, uh, the Purim Suda, the Purim meal. And uh, as he was getting up, this student who had not been pushed away, every once in a while he would, you know, utter his request, uh, the student stood in front of the Chavetz Chaim and barred his way. And he says, no, you can't go. Until you promise me that I will be with you in, uh, in, in Gan Eden. You must promise me. Now, what happened was <coughs> that all of a sudden the Chavetz Chaim got very serious. He got very serious. Yeah. And uh, he said <coughs> that, look, I don't know how much Ghanaian I have, but I probably have some amount, small amount. Why? Because from the day that I reached understanding, I have never listened to or spoke Russian Hara. I've never listened to or spoke any, ki- or spoke any kind of um, conversation that would be harmful to people. So therefore, I tell you, and this is the Chofetz Chaim talking to that Bocha, that if you promise not to speak or listen to any Lashon Hara, I will guarantee you that you will be next to me in Ilm Habo. Incredible statement for the Chavz Chaim. And for those who are familiar with the Chavz Chaim, then you know that whatever he said was uh, usually fulfilled, was fulfilled. The Bacha, it's interesting that this person, even though he was drunk, this student, all of a sudden uh, perked up and he became sober because he realized the import of the Chofetz Chaim statement. He remained silent. He couldn't say anything. 
because he probably knew that he couldn't keep the uh, the uh, promise that the Chofetz, the agreement or the condition that the Chofetz Chaim gave him, and he remained silent. So at this point, the Chofetz Chaim said, "Incredible! Here is an individual who stands at the gates of heaven, literally at the gates of heaven, and doesn't want to go in." So he said, "Take him away." He motioned to the other people, and he left to eat his suda. That is the story of the Chavetz Chaim. It's a very interesting story. It's an unusual story. A story of a person who almost got the same level as the Chavetz Chaim. And of course, uh, didn't rise to the occasion. But what I'd like to think about is uh, several ideas regarding the story. First of all, it's important to know that nobody can promise you Ulim Habor. The Chavetz Chaim can't promise this student his portion of Olam Habo, that this student will be next to him. He cannot promise him that. He cannot even promise him, of course, Olam Habo. And the proof of that was that he didn't say, you will be with me where I will be in Olam Habo, in Gan Eden. He said to him, on condition that you observe a certain mitzvah, commandment. But the idea is that the commandment or the mitzvah of Shmir Saloshan, to guard one's tongue, is so great that this Bocho, this student would have anyway been in an enormously elevated state of Olam Habo. So what the Chofetz Chaim could promise him is that <clears throat> since anyway you're at this elevated state, I will guarantee that I will move you over into my Heichel, my chamber. What we begin to see is that Shmir Saloshin is enormously great. This is what we begin to see that there is something about guarding one's tongue from speaking any kind of slander that has an incredible kind of profundity to it and that can almost that can guarantee the uh, observer of that commandment a tremendously elevated state in a future world. But if you take a look at the mitzvah of Shmir Salashen, it's really very deceptive. It's a very deceptive kind of mitzvah. It seems very uh, easy. Or on the other, on the, uh, other side, uh, if you take a look at the Avera of Lashen Hara, to speak slander about somebody else. It seems to be very deceptive. Not only that, but when you examine the Mamore Chazal, the statements by the Chazal, one is very difficult, one finds it very difficult to understand what Chazal are talking about. If you really look at their statements literally, it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to really understand what they are talking about. Now, there are two approaches to discuss the uh, mitzvah Shemir Saloshin, or to talk about Lashon Hara. One is what's called the Musr approach, where I can sit here and exhort you, you know, and tell you not to do this, and this is why, and, and so on. That is one approach. I am not going to take that approach. Um, for several reasons. First of all, everybody knows that there's a mitzvah of Shemir Saloshin that wants you to not speak Lashon Hara. The approach that I'm going to try to take is called the Hashkafa approach. What is the Hashkaf approach? I'm not going to tell you not to speak Lashon Hara. I won't do that. Instead, what I'm going to do is tell you what is the internal mechanism of Lashon Hara, the panemius of Lashon Hara. In other words, what happens in reality when you speak Lashon Hara? How does it interface with the internal design of creation? When you understand that, when you realize that, you can make your own decision if you want to speak Lashon or not. In other words, 
you have to understand what the significance of the act of Lashon Hara is. Based on that, you will be able to ask yourself if you want to go ahead with it, the Lashon Hara, or if you want to desist. It's up to you. I'm going to take that approach. I find that this approach is much greater, far more powerful on, uh, in its ability to uh, get people at least to think about, or at least to be more conscious of, Lashon Hara. Now, in my attempt to explain the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the ideas of Lashon Hara, of course, I'm going to provide a comprehensive framework. Um, and through that framework, you will not only understand Lashon Hara, but you will understand Chazals, many and many Chazals, the, the words of the sages concerning Lashon Hara and why what they say about it is true. Now, before I go on to the idea of Lashon Hara, we first must make sure that we all understand what is Lashon Hara, right? We have to make sure that we all have common terms. We have to make sure that we agree on concepts before I, I go on to speak about Lashon Hara. I don't want to speak about one thing, and meanwhile, in your, in your mind, you have a totally different idea of what I'm talking about, of, of what I mean. Therefore, the first thing we need is what's called a definition. What is the definition of Lashon Hara? Well, in a very concise and precise way, the definition of Lashon Hara is any communication that can cause damage to another individual. That's what it is. Any communication <coughs> that generates uh, any kind of injury or harm to another individual. That is the definition of Lashon Hara. When we ask ourselves, where exactly does Lashon Hara speak? Based on this definition, what do we see? That in order to be defined as Lashon Hara, it has to be a communication, and the communication itself must be able to cause damage. If that is the case, there is something that we begins to dawn on us. That the idea of Lashon Hara, the concept of Lashon Hara, really emerges from what's called a superstructure of hezek, damage. <clears throat> what does that mean? <clears throat> if somebody causes damage to somebody else, he is a mazik. The individual he caused damage to is the nizak. The damage itself is called a hezek. How does one cause damage? There are several ways one causes damage. In other words, what are the instruments of hezek? What are the instruments which an individual can use to cause damage? One is called gufoy, his body. If you walk over and beat somebody up, if you walk over and, burn, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and murder somebody, that is causing damage, the gufoy, with his body. There's another way of causing damage, another instrument of hezek, and that is called memoinoi, your property. In other words, if my cow goes your cow, the classic uh, uh, um, um, ideas which are brought down in the Torah, if uh, my dog bites somebody, uh, and so on, or if I have a pit, I dig a hole and somebody falls in it. If I have a, a sheep and goes into somebody's field and it, of course, uh, and it eats from the field. This is the idea of the uh, the uh, concept of mamoinoi. One's property does damage. So the second instrument whereby one can do damage is called mamoinoi. Your property. 
The third way a person can do damage, in other words, the third instrument that a person can employ to create damage is called lishoinoi, his tongue. So we, we begin to see is that an individual can create damage in one of three ways. Gufoi, his body, mamoinoi, his property, or lishoinoi, his tongue, his conversation. Or lishoinoi really means his tongue. What we see, therefore, is that the concept of Lashon Hara as a communicative device that can create damage is nothing more than a mazik. In other words, somebody who speaks Lashon Hara, a Mesape Lashon Hara, or a Baal Lashon Hara, is a mazik. That's all he is. But he does damage via his tongue. Instead of his body or his possessions, he uses his tongue. He uses his communication to do damage. It's very important to understand that the conceptual superstructure of Lashon Hara is really hezek. It's not some kind of mystical thing the way some people think it is. Somebody who speaks Lashon Hara, since the definition of Lashon Hara is to do damage by communication, therefore he is a mazik. Except the instrument that he employs is called Lashinoi, his tongue, rather than his body or his possession. Now, as such, we can differentiate certain elements that go into somebody speaks Lashon Hara. There is always a sender who is speaking Lashon Hara, and I call it the sender. He is sending forth the damaging uh, report. There is, how does he communicate this Lashon Hara? Now, there are many ways to communicate Lashon Hara, and this is not known by many people. You can communicate Lashon Hara by conversation, by spoken language. You can have a conversation and belittle, disparage, uh, denigrate, and so on, somebody else. You can make a, uh, you can use a sound. Somebody says, what do you think of Ruven? And you say, ah, that's Lashon Hara. You can use a facial expression. That's Lashon Hara. You can write. Newspapers are loaded with Lashon Hara. Many books are loaded with Lashon Hara. You can write Lashon Hara. Or you can signal Lashon Hara. You can use sign language, Morse code. It doesn't make a difference. The key idea is any communication, no matter how, no matter what form that communication takes, that is the instrument of Lashon Hara. It doesn't make a difference. So therefore, that is why I say any communication that, that generates damage, not any conversation. Because communication means any form of language whether it be sound language, spoken language, body language, written language, or signal language. It doesn't make a difference. Now, so therefore we see that this Lashonar always has a sender, and it has also an instrument, how we send the message. Another the third component, what it has, is what's called the report or the communication itself. What is said? What is being said? What is the content? What is being said about a certain subject, about an individual? Now, there's another element called the receiver, <coughs> who is listening to this Lashon Hara. Now, Lashon Hara is a communi communicative averas. means that the only way you could speak Lashon Hara or, or commit the avera of Lashon Hara is if somebody's listening to you. If you are talking to yourself, that is not Lashon Hara. You must communicate this to others. The concept of communication always implies a receiver. Now, when we say that Lashon Hara is the communication which damages, what kind of damage are we talking about? The truth is there are four kinds of damage that one can do through Lashon Hara. <clears throat> one, 
he can damage somebody physically. If somebody walks over to somebody and says, did you hear what so-and-so did to your son? And this, the, the receiver of that message then walks over and beats the other guy up, then he has created physical damage because of his conversation. You can create emotional injury. You can embarrass somebody in front of others. That is Lashon Hara, by the way, besides other Averis, other sins. And you cause them tremendous emotional disturbance, emotional distress. You can damage somebody financially. You can tell somebody a business secret about somebody else. And in that way, he will set up his own store and you can tremendously damage financially somebody else. And the fourth way is what's called reputational image. One of the greatest assets that a man or a woman has is his reputation or her reputation. In fact, you can disturb, you can damage a person more by damaging the reputation than by probably almost anything else. If you speak derogatory about derogatory words to, about, about somebody, a subject, to a receiver, <clears throat> you are damaging that person's reputation. That is also called damage. You, what is happening when you damage somebody's reputation or somebody's image? What are you? In what way are you really dam? What is what is the damage? The answer is that that individual has what's called a loss of social standing or status. In some way, his social acceptance and approval is injured or harmed. Therefore, we now see that there are four ways somebody who speaks flesh and horror can commit damage, generate damage, either physical, emotional, financial, or reputation. All of them are true damages, and all of them can be accomplished by using one's tongue. We now understand what Russian horror is. We have a definition, we have some parameters, we have the components of what goes in, uh, uh, when one's, uh, what's involved when one speaks Russian horror. I call it the Russian horror paradigm or model. You have a sender, you have the instrument, how is he communicating it, what is being communicated, the communication itself, you have the receiver of that communication. Uh, and of course you have the damage which ensues. You also have the circumstances. In what circumstances was this, uh, this said? In any case, uh, those are some of the components or parameters that are included in Lashon Hara. We also see that the conceptual superstructure of Lashon Hara is hezek, damage. Somebody who speaks Lashon Hara is a mazik. That's really what he is. Now, if that is the case, then what we can do is begin to ask ourselves, certain questions. There are certain questions that arise as a result of this analysis. Very difficult questions. The first question is the following. If Russian horror is only a mazik, if Russian horror is only a, in other words, if the concept of Russian horror is one who speaks or is able to uh, generate damage as a result of his speech, then how do we understand why it's so stringent? The Chofetz Chaim enumerates 31 commandments, directly or indirectly, that a person can transgress if he speaks Lashon Hara. That's incredible. 31 commandments, whether they be positive commandments or negative commandments, that somebody can transgress if he speaks Lashon Hara? That's unbelievable. Do you know that if somebody damages somebody else, there's not even a love, there's not even a negative commandment. The, the only negative commandment by damage is if you steal. Le sigzoil, le signoif. You cannot steal. But if somebody walks over and, puts, and burns a guy's house down, he's got to make recompense. He has to make restitution. There's no question about that. But was he, did he transgress something? 
Is there a transgression that a person uh, uh, um, uh, gets because he burned somebody's house down? Not really. Of course, he's got to pay the guy back. But was he over a love? Not really. Yet we find that Lashon Hara, which is only a mazik, because it's another instrument, another form of doing damage, he can be over, he can transgress 31 commandments. That is almost inconceivable to understand. Why? Why is it when you do damage through your tongue, you, rece- you can be the recipient of 31 uh, sins, chatoim, whereas if you do so many damage through your body or through your possession, there's not even any kind of transgression associated. That is an extremely difficult question to answer. Because once we understand that Lashonara is only a mazik, then it doesn't make sense why it has so many uh, commandments associated with it. The next question that we can ask is uh, another uh, Chazal. There is a Gemara that says, Rabbi Alexandri, that's in his name, Rabbi Alexander, he went into the marketplace and he said, Mi boyus chaye, who wants to live? It's a famous uh, Chazal, a famous uh, statement of the, uh, of the Chachomim. Who wants to live? So of course people gathered around him and they said, of course, we, we, everybody wants to live. Who doesn't want to live? So they asked him, what do you have? Now they obviously thought he was selling some kind of medicine that would prolong life. So he says, Omalei, so he said to them, no, I'm not selling you medicine. I will quote you a verse, the famous person. Mi ho'isha chofetz chayim, who wants to live? Nitzol shoin chomero, then desist from speaking evil. Now, they obviously thought that he was selling a medicine. What Rabbi Alexandri was saying to them, in essence, is, no, you people are making a big mistake. You people think that in order to live long, you've got to do some kind of... Uh, uh, you've got to involve yourself in some kind of physical exercise, right? Jogging, or whatever, right? Aerobics. Or you've got to do certain other forms of physical exercise. You people are making a big mistake. I will tell you that there is a spiritual path that truly allows you to live long here. Not that it gives you a future world, but that its effect is that it allows you to promote your life. It gives you the long sort after longevity. What, what is that? Don't speak Lashon Hara. This is what he told them, which is really a remarkable idea, that there's actually a commandment that if you do, it's not only gives you a, a portion in the world to come, but it actually promotes life here. And when he was saying it promotes life, it is important to understand promoting life means you live into your 90s and you're healthy. You don't have Alzheimer's disease or all the other diseases that of, the, of the aged. You're just old, but you're healthy. There's no point living to 95 and being in a wheelchair and you know, being senile and so on. You know, what's the point of it all? Long life with real health. You're old, but you, 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 know, you, you basically function quite well. The question we must ask is, what in the world is Rabbi Alexander talking about? How is it possible that somebody who does not damage somebody else with his tongue or conversation or whatever, why should he live long? What does one have to do with the other? Now, when Rabbi Alexander says something, he's not telling them a from idea, means some kind of religious idea. Uh, what he's telling them is that there's a true internal connection between the mitzvah of Shemir Salashim, to guard your tongue, and the fact that you can promote life. And the question is, 
what is it? What does it mean? And why? What is the framework that obviously Chazal understood that we don't, and that's why to us it looks like some kind of voodoo magic. Now, <clears throat> there is another Chazal Actually, which is very similar, where the Gemara says, "The boy Chaim If you want to live, it's all up to your tongue. The boy Misa If you want to die, it's up to your tongue. What the Gemara is saying is that life and death, which is a famous statement, that life and death is in the hands of the tongue. What the Gemara is saying is that if you really want to live long, it's up to you. It's up to your tongue. If you want to die. It's not that if you don't want to live long. The Gemara is saying something else, that if you want to live, watch your tongue. If you want to die, then talk Lashon Hara. It's not saying if you don't want to live long, then don't, you know, then uh, speak Lashon Hara. No, it's saying if you want to die, if you want to make sure that you're going to die young or have a lot of problems, then speak Lashon Hara. The question is why? What does that mean? Again, it's unintelligible. It seems to be a mystery. Now, there's another verse, famous verse. In Mishle, it says, He who guards his tongue and his mouth, he will guard himself from all kinds of problems. Problems that afflict the soul. He will guard himself from that. Now, what it says there is not only will you live long, you won't have tsaras. You won't have any problems, tragedies. Calamities, catastrophes, upsets, and so on. You won't have those kind of things. Those things <coughs> which uh, <coughs> uh, uh, invade other people's lives, you will be free of. And there's another Gemara, it's really a Medrash, which is really a mind-boggling Medrash. The Medrash says this, Omar HaKadosh Baruch God says, Mikol tzoros habos aleichem, ani yochel hatzil eschem, from any kind of tzorah, any kind, any sickness, any kind of financial worry, any kind of emotional distress, you name it, drug addiction, whatever, it doesn't make a difference. I can save you. Don't speak Lashon Hara. What does that mean? That means what the, that Chazal, that Medrash is saying, is that if you don't speak Lashon Hara, forget about living long. That's besides the point. Even your life will be relatively tranquil. You will live out your life in relative tranquility and peace. Now, it's interesting what the Chavetz Chaim says on this. He says a remarkable statement. He says the truth is, it is possible to watch your tongue. It's a mistake that people make. They think that, well, if I'm going to guard my tongue, that's the end of the conversation. It's false. But even, he says like this, but even if you think it's impossible, and the truth is it's not, even if you felt it was impossible, he says it is worse to shut your mouth the rest of your life, in order to get this promise from God, when God says that if you don't speak Lashonara, I will save you from every single kind of tzara. It's worth it. It's a, it's a trade-off is worth it. That's what the Chavit Chaim says. That's how great this haftocha, this promise is by the Rabbi A Very interesting statement by the Chavit Chaim. But of course, our question is, why? Why is it if you speak Lashonara, you don't get any tzaras? Okay. What else? Even more. Chazal say that even if Jews 
worship idols, Avedizara. Even if Jews are even Avedizara, they worship idols, which is the greatest sin of all, to worship idols. If the people do not speak Lashonara, then the Satan, Satan means the uh, prosecutor, the, uh, the angel of death, whatever you want to call him, cannot touch them, which is an incredible idea. In other words, even if Jews do the worst possible sin, if they don't speak Lashon Hara, they are free. They don't have to worry. It doesn't make sense. That's an incredible statement. And that, that's also followed up by another Chazal in the same vein. It says there that the generation of Achav, who was one of the kings of Israel, that generation, they all worshipped idols. It was a generation of idol worship. But it says that when they used to go to war, not one soldier fell. Could you imagine having a war and then that one soldier that falls? Everybody comes back alive. And the whole generation worshipped idols. What does that mean? It doesn't make sense. So the Gemara says, why is that true? Because there was no Dilturia B'nehem. There was no Bali Lashon Hara. Nobody spoke Lashon Hara in the generation of Achav. And they bring a proof because of Vadya, the prophet, hid over a hundred prophets and nobody, uh, nobody informed on what he did to the king. The Gemara says, in other words, that the whole generation worshipped idols, yet when they went to war, nobody ever died. Whereas in the generation of Shaul, in Shaul, right, the father of David, of Dovar HaMelech, where the amount of terror was so great in that generation that the children, the children were able to learn Torah in such depth that they can expound on 49 ways in the Torah. Forget about the adults. The children could do this. Could you imagine the spiritual level that was present in the days of Shaul? Yet it says that when they used to go to war, they used to die. Why? Because there was a lot of people speaking Russian in that generation. It's incredible. In a generation of Achav, when they worshipped idols, nobody dies. In a generation of Shaul, that children can expound Torah probably bigger than the G'dalim of today, right? They used to die because people used to speak Lashon Hara. Why? What's the connection? It doesn't make sense. How can a commandment which is basically a mazik have such enormous power, wield such an incredible uh, 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 power? If you think that's good, then this is even more mysterious. The Yerushalmi in Peah says the following, Just like the reward of learning Torah is greater than all mitzvahs combined, which is something we know, the punishment of Lashon Hara, the sin of Lashon Hara, is worse than any sin you can commit. Now it sounds like a, a, a religious chazal, but it's not. When chazal tell you something, when the Rabbonim tell you something, especially in the Gemara and the Medrash, it is incredibly precise. The problem is we have to understand where they are coming out of. They somehow have an understanding of what Lashon Hara is that we don't. What they are saying is that there is no Avera that beats Lashon Hara. I don't care what you do. You can commit adultery. You can worship idols. You can murder. It's really irrelevant. The greatest sin is Lashon Hara. Just like the greatest mitzvah is learning the Torah. That is completely incomprehensible. That kind of a statement. And the truth is, that is uh, verified by another Chazal. Call him a Sapa Lashon Hara. Anybody who speaks Lashon Hara, 
is kosher, it is more difficult, that Lashon Hara, that Lashon Hara is more difficult than Avodah Zorah, somebody worships idols, Gilea Royas, somebody commits adultery, and Shvich somebody commits murder. Lashon Hara is worse than all three combined, which is incredible because on all these three Averis sins, one is obligated to give up his life not to commit them. Any other commandment, you do not have to give up your life to, uh, to commit them. Somebody walks over and says, I want you to uh, transgress the Sabbath, Shabbos, or else I'll kill you. It is permitted to transgress Shabbos. Only these three commandments is a person have to give up his life, rather, sacrifice his life, rather than transgress. Yet the Gemara says that Russian horror is worse than all three. Incomprehensible. It doesn't make sense. Why Russian horror? Should be so powerful. It also says that Kolomasap Lashinara, Magdala Vinus Adlashamayam. Anybody who speaks Lashinara uh, magnifies his sin up to heaven. You know, it's, it's, when you, if you think you're just damaging somebody here, you're making a mistake. There is some kind of interaction that you have with heaven. What is that? What is the connection? In the beginning of Shemos, we find in another incredible event. Moshe Rabbeinu is an Egyptian, he's, right? He's raised up in Pharaoh's house. He goes out among the, the Jews and he sees one, one uh, Mitzri beating a Jew. So he kills him. He comes back the next day and he sees two, Jew, two Jews fighting. He says to so one Jew, Why are you beating up your friend? So that Jew turned to him and said, Who made you some kind of a ruler over us? Moshe Rabbeinu then said to himself, Surely the matter is known. Now the regular translation of that, or the, the, the plain meaning of that, is surely the matter will now be known, because this person is now going to inform Pharaoh of what I did. And that's exactly what happened. He had a flea for his life. But Rashi says, and he brings a medrash that says, that is not really what Moshe meant. The true meaning of what Moshe meant is this. Moshe Rabbeinu always wondered, why is it that Jews are in such terrible exile? Why? Why more than other nations? And Moshe Rabbeinu knew that Jews worshipped idols. Because the Jews at that time worshipped idols. Because when the Jews were crossing the Red Sea, the angels said, these these people worship Avedi Zorah, the Egyptians, and these people worship Avedi Zorah, the Jews. Why are you saving the Jews and killing the Egyptians? That's what the Medrash says. The Jews worshipped idols in Egypt. Yet the fact that they worshipped idols didn't bother Moshe Rabbeinu why they're in exile. But the fact that he saw Russian horror, that somebody was now going to tell, inform the Pharaoh, right, on the fact that he killed a Jew, which is of course Russian horror, he's going to damage Moshe Rabbeinu by telling, informing the Pharaoh, that's what decided in his mind why the Jews are guilty of exile or such a terrible servitude to the Egyptians. Why? It doesn't make sense. Avodah Zorah can't get them exiled, and Lashonar can. Of course, this fits. Apparently, Moshe Rabbeinu understood what the Chazal knew, or rather, the Chazal understood what Moshe Rabbeinu knew, and they are, they are reiterating the same idea that Avodah Zorah itself does not get you exiled. It is Lashonar that does it all. But why? We find, in other words, that even in the Torah it says that you do not get sufferings or servitude or subjugation. Only with Lashon Hara, not with Avodah Zarah. That's the question.
Also, we know that the the uh, the uh, Jews in in the in the desert they they had ten trials and they failed every one of them. And there's an interesting Chazal that says <coughs> that that our forefathers were tried ten times by God in the desert. And in all of them, the decree was not sealed that they should all die in the desert. The last trial was the trial of the Muraglim, the spies. And they came back, of course, and they, and they slandered the land. And they slandered God also. Because they said, God cannot bring this to the land because the people there are more powerful and whatever. And the land is not a good land and so on. Because they, they, said, they spoke Lashon Haram, that is when the decree that the Jews will die in Egypt, uh, in, excuse me, in, in the uh, desert, that's when it was decreed. Not before. Again, we don't understand. The fact that the Jews are, uh, uh, failed all those tests, that is not enough to ensure that they will die in the desert. The decree is sealed because of the last test, which was Lashon Hara. Why? And the last Chazal I mentioned is the famous one, that the second temple was destroyed only because of the oven of Lashon Hara, because of the sin of Lashon Hara. That is why it was destroyed. Imagine that. And the Gemara says that in that generation, when the when the uh, when the, uh, the temple was destroyed, the second temple, there was an enormous amount of Torah among the Jews, but it didn't save them. They spoke Lashon Hara. There was a tremendous amount of sinas chinam, hatred between them. They spoke Lashon Hara, and that is why the temple was destroyed. And the question is again, why? And from that Gemara, we see a significant idea. That the reason why we do not have a base of Mikdash is because of Lashon Hara. Because if Lashon Hara destroys a temple, it certainly guarantees one cannot be built. So the main chet, the major sin that keeps the temple from being built is Lashon Hara. Today, that is the main chet. And of course, the question is, why? Why is this so? We begin to see one incredible idea. Chazal obviously have a totally different understanding of Lashon Hara than we do. There is something about Lashon Hara that we don't even begin to understand. We think if you badmouth somebody, if you denigrate somebody, what's the big deal? Everybody does it. You do it 1,500 times a day. If you pick up a phone, it goes on all the time. <clears throat> but obviously, from what I've mentioned, there is something about Lashon Hara that is of enormous import it is incredibly significant. In other words, whatever you do is mind-boggling. And it's obviously far more than the physical repercussions. We obviously see that there are enormous metaphysical repercussions from speaking Russian horror. And of course the question is, what are those metaphysical repercussions? Now, in order to begin to address this issue, in other words, in order to <clears throat> understand what's called the pnimius of Lashon Hara, what really happens when you speak Lashon Hara, that's what we don't know, and that's what we must understand. And when we understand that, all these chazals will be very simple to explain. We need the key that unlocks the door. In order to understand that, we have to understand some of the pnimius of the Bria. You have to understand something about creation, because if you don't understand something about creation, 
you won't understand the ideas of Lashon Hara. Because the truth is that when you speak Lashon Hara, you are really interfacing with creation in some aspect. So you've got to know about the creation, exactly where in the mechanism are you addressing yourself to, and then you will know about the premise of Lashon Hara. <clears throat> now, therefore, I would like to begin with just a, a couple of ideas. It's sort of like a sum up of the internal design of creation. Uh, really an a- abstraction uh, of these ideas. But it's necessary in order to understand the ideas of Lashon Hara. The first idea is, why did God create the universe? Why did he create at all? Why does God create creation? What does he need it for? And of course, we know he doesn't need it, because God has no needs. The answer to this is Hatova, that God created or he brought things into being to be mative. In other words, he created everything in order that there should be a recipient of an incredible state of well-being. That's all. He created all things that there be a creature, a being, that would somehow receive an incredible state of well-being. So therefore, the reason for creation is Hatova, is the fact that God wanted to be mative or to bestow an infinite state of goodness on a, an entity of being. Now, why does God want to do this? We don't know. We don't know why he wanted to be mative. We don't know why he wanted to bestow this state of infinite goodness on a being. That we don't know. But we know from the second idea that this is what he wanted to do. And that is how we begin. Therefore, the purpose of creation is called Hatova, that God wants to be a mative, he wants to bestow an infinite state of goodness, well-being, on an entity that he will create. Now we know, of course, that that entity is man. That is the entity or the being that God created, and this individual would be the recipient of that infinite state of goodness or well-being. Now, the next idea is, what is exactly this infinite state of well-being or goodness? What is the hatava that God will give man? And the answer is the following, that man will know the truth, he will comprehend the truth and the nature of his own emanation. We all emanate from God. God is the creator. He's a source of being and he maintains being. But we do not perceive that. This is obviously completely concealed from us. The infinite state of well-being that is given to man is that man knows or comprehends the truth and the nature of his emanation. He actually sees himself emanating from God. In that emanation is an infinite state of well-being. That is the future world. That is the reward in Ilam Haba, where he comprehends God not as some kind of external being, but as, an, as a being which completely gives a rise to him. He feels and he perceives the emanation itself. Now, what is the knowledge that he gains, or the perception that he gains in, in the fact that he comprehends this emanation, his own emanation? First, that God is a source of all being, including his own. The second is that, therefore, God, who is the source, is the absolute master of existence. He who gives rise to existence, obviously, has absolute control of the existence itself. So therefore he sees that God is a yichut that God is the absolute ruler or master of creation. He sees that God, of course, is the source of creation. 
And there's another interesting idea that this individual sees. He perceives that God is being. In other words, that God, not that God has existence. God does not have existence, which sounds like a remarkable statement. God does not have existence. God is existence, per se. He is the concept of existence itself. That is the essence of God. The essence of God is being. That is what he perceives. That perception is called Hasogus Yehudai. The comprehension of the total oneness of God, that God truly is being, and therefore he truly is. And therefore he really is the only thing that really exists. The way we can understand it is that we perceive the Shekhinah itself. Man comprehends God himself, the Shekhinah. It is a comprehension of the Shekhinah, but in terms of the aspect of that Shekhinah's oneness, or totality of being, that is what he comprehends. I know I'm going rather rapid, but this is just introductory remarks to get to Lashon Hara, but these are all important ideas. Each one of these ideas can be elaborated into a whole shear. But nonetheless, I just have to anyway state these ideas. Therefore, this is what man perceives. The comprehension of the nature of his own emanation. He comprehends in that emanation that that emanation or God is totally one, that God is existence itself. That's called Atsagas Yehudai, the comprehension of the oneness of God, the uh, perception of the Shekhinah. And that is the Oineg. Oineg means pleasure. That is the pleasure that man receives uh, in the future world. <coughs> now, the next idea that I want to mention in the internal design of creation, <coughs> now that we know the purpose of creation, we know what the infinite state of goodness is, <coughs> the comprehension that God is existence itself, and you comprehend that through the comprehension of your own emanation, is the concept of what's called <coughs> work. Now, when God created the universe, he had to decide if he would give this to man as a gift, a matano, or would man have to earn this? God decided that man has to work for this reward, work for this hasoga, this comprehension. Why is that? The answer is the following. How does a person achieve his sense of self, his sense of self-worth, what makes a person feel self-respect or self-esteem? And the answer to that is when a man is productive. When a person achieves or is productive, that is what gives him a sense of self-worth, a sense of self. If a person is a recipient, if he constantly receives uh, his livelihood or what he needs from outside of himself, if he is in what's called a state of recipiency, then he, doesn't, he loses a sense of self. He attains what's called a sense of inferiority. Feelings of inferiority, inferiority complex. He loses his self-esteem and self-respect. Therefore, God decided that this uh, comprehension that he wants to give man, which is the, re is the, uh, the uh, state, the existential state that man has, which is of infinite goodness, he wants man to work for. Man must earn this state. Therefore, it will no more be called matano or gift. It will be called schar, reward. Because reward is always that which you achieve as a result of some effort which is expended. Therefore, man must be responsible for his own future world. That is what comes out. 
<coughs> therefore, God created a world. He created, therefore, a world that has what's called cause and effect. Why does this world have cause and effect? Nothing happens unless there is a cause before it. And that effect itself is a further cause for the next effect. Because since God decided that man must create his own future world, therefore the world must have the concept called cause and effect. Because man must cause the effect. Man must cause the future world that he will enjoy. That is the effect. Therefore this world is governed by the most fundamental physical law of all, namely cause and effect. Now, therefore if that's the case, there must be two places and two times. There must therefore be a state, a place where man will earn. That's Oilam Hazer. And there must be a place where man will enjoy the reward. That's Oilam Habo. Therefore, there must be two places, Oilam Hazer, Oilam Habo, this world and the future world. And therefore, there are two times. This world is, of course, now. And the future world, Oilam Habo, of course, will be later. In other words, the dictate or what determines that there must be an Oilam Hazer and not just an Oilam Habo, future world is the fact that man must earn his reward. Now, this brings us to the next idea that <clears throat> if this is the case, that God wants man to earn what? The comprehension of the absolute oneness of God, God must now set up a task for man. Not only that, not only man must be giving a task what to do, but obviously the world must have a deficiency and then the task of man will be to remove the deficiency. Because obviously if the world is perfect, then there's nothing for a person to do, and therefore he cannot earn reward. Therefore, what the, what the Rebbe created is what's called a chassan, a deficiency in the universe. He told man that you must remove this deficiency, that is your task. Of course, he gave man the wherewithal, the instrument by which a man can remove this deficiency and therefore achieve this task, and therefore he gave, and at the end of it he gave, gives man the reward. What exactly is the deficiency? The deficiency that God created, which man must remove, is the concealment of the oneness of God itself. God concealed his own relationship with his creation. Man must discover or realize what this relationship is. That is called Hesti Chudai, the deficiency of this world in other words the definition of Oilam Hazer is Hesti Yechudoi Oilam Hazer or this world is an existential state whereby the beings that exist in this existential state are not aware of their creator are not aware of the source of their being that is the definition of Oilam Hazer so therefore Hesti Yechudoi the consumment of the oneness of God is the deficiency he created the task, therefore, is to remove that deficiency, or rather, that man must reveal the oneness of God. That's his task. Now, how does he do it? Therefore, man was given an instrument, and the instrument is called the commandments, the Torah. Mitzvahs are not an end in themselves the way most people think it is, unfortunately. What mitzvahs or commandments are is that they are a means to an end. The commandment or the mitzvah is the instrument by which a person reveals the oneness of God. Why? Because every commandment is a testimony to the oneness of God, which I cannot go into now. How? But every commandment that a person observes, he testifies to the fact that God is the only being that exists. Therefore, the mitzvahs 
is the instrument or the vehicle, the method, by which a person accomplishes the task of Gili Yechudoi and if removes Hesti Yechudoi. Now, when a person will have used the instrument of Edus Yechudoi, testifying to the oneness of God, and he will remove the deficiency of the concealment of the oneness of God, Hesti Yechudoi, and he will have accomplished the task of Gili Yechudoi, then he will merit or he will experience the exact amount of Yechudoi that he revealed. And therefore, the exact amount of hasogas yichudoy, or comprehension of the oneness of God that he experiences in the future world, is the exact amount that he worked to reveal. This is what I call the quadratic structure of Judaism. It is the most fundamental structure. The deficiency of creation is hesti yichudoy, the concealment of who God is, his absolute oneness. The task is gili yichudoy, to reveal that oneness. The instrument by which an individual removes that deficiency or how he accomplishes the task is called Edus Yechudoi, to testify to the oneness of God. And of course, the reward is Hasagas Yechudoi, which is the comprehension of the oneness itself. Whatever you do is exactly what you get. No more and no less. And that is, of course, why we say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, because... In the end of our lives, the person is supposed to summarize his life by saying, Here Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Because the whole purpose of man, of course, is to reveal the oneness of God. And of course, the last letter of Shema is Ayin, and it's written large. And the last letter of Echod, or one, is Dalit, and that spells out Aid, testimony. You are supposed to testify to Echod, the oneness of God. And what will be the reward? The reverse. Dalit is in the last letter, Echod is Dalit, and Ayin is the last letter of Ayin, both of these letters are large, spells out Da, you will know. In other words, if you are an aid, if you testify to Echod, Da, you will know that Echod. It's all in that Pasuk. That is the quadratic structure of Judaism. Now, <clears throat> what do we see from all this? <clears throat> we see that God created the universe, the Rebbe created his universe strictly based on justice. What is justice? Justice means <clears throat> what you do, that's what you get. If you do A, or mathematical terms, if you do A, B must result. If you do not do A, then B does not transpire. Justice is a reciprocity. That's what Din is. Man must create his own Ulam Habo. God does not create Ulam Habo for you. You do it yourself. If you do it, you get it. If you don't do it, you're out. You self-annihilate. The amount of ulam habo that you created, that's the exact amount you get. And since we know that what is an ulam habo in the future world is a comprehension of the oneness of God, that's the exact amount that you get, which is the comprehension of the oneness of God. If you create A, which is to testify to God's oneness, you get B, which is the oneness perceived. We see therefore that God created the world based on din or justice, which means cause and effect. It's an exact reciprocity. What you do is what you get. Now, maybe you think, well, wait a minute. What happens if a person doesn't work so hard? Maybe God will overlook it. God is a kind God. We know that God has infinite chasadim. He is very kind. And the definition of kindness is to do something without its having been earned. When you do somebody a favor where that person did not earn that favor from you, that is called chesed. Maybe you'll say that, wait, maybe, wait, it, 
the Rabbanu Shalom is a tremendous Baal Chesed, infinite Baal Chesed, where he does kindness. So therefore we can say that maybe he will overlook the fact that you did not earn the Olam Habo. And the answer is no. There is a Gemara that says, Anybody that says that God is a Mavater, he overlooks, he pardons, or he's not exact, then let his years be overlooked. In other words, if you think that God's actions are capricious, chancy, right? And they're not precise, they're not governed by exactness in terms of what you did, that's what you get, then your years are also chancy. So let him overlook a couple of your years. What's the difference? It has nothing to do with your earning anyway. God is not a mavata. There is no such thing as veto by the Rabbani Shalom. What you do is what you get. If you don't do it, you don't get it. So then you're going to ask me, so then where is this chesed of God? If I must work to have ilm haba, if I must create my own ilm haba, so where is the great chesed of the Rabbani Shalom? And of course the answer to that is that the chesed of God is infinite. And I will show you that in Russian horror, we have a mind-boggling chesed. But it's obviously, the, the, the chesed of God, is, of course, cannot be enumerated. Uh, because the chesed of God fundamentally interfaces with din. In some way, it addresses itself to justice and does things with it. But it's too extensive to deal with. We are going to take it one look at his chesed. And that's called Russian horror. Now you're looking at me and say, what does Lashon have to do with the Chesed of God? From whatever we had before, it sounds incredible. You speak Lashon Hara, then what you get visited upon you is all the Tsaras and the destruction of the Temple and exile and so on. No. The concept of Shmir Salashin is one of the greatest Chasodim that God can do to you. What does that mean? We now begin our entrance into, into the area of the internal design that relates to Lashon Hara. Until now, we saw the concept of the quadratic structure. That our God created a universe that runs absolutely in din. Not only that, but the entire universe pivots around his oneness. And the entire effort of a man in order to experience that oneness in a future world must be to, to, to declare that oneness. We see, therefore, so far, that man must earn his reward in the future world. That is called din. What is din? Or rather, how does it proceed? Let's assume somebody does a sin. How does God judge a person? Because we know the world is, is run by justice. What are the judicial proceedings? Which is what we can ask. Exactly how does the judiciary process take place according to God? Well, there are certain fundamental ideas that we have to know. Once we understand those ideas, you will understand what Lashon Hara is and exactly how it interfaces with the mechanism. You must know that the direction that God takes with the world, how does God direct the world? The answer to that is he directs the world as if the, in, 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 in the same way as an earthly kingdom. kingdom. There is a statement in Chazal, Ma'chus the kingdom of heaven is run or similar to the kingdom of earth. In other words, God run, runs, he directs the entire heavenly system, the whole existential sphere which is called spirit, not physical. He conducts it the way he conducts an earthly kingdom. 
What does that mean? What that means is that the spiritual realm has courts of law, courts of justice. And these courts of justice have rules and procedures, just like when we judge men here, they also have to go through court. Every case that is to be judged comes before this court. And you should know whatever occurs to a person is as a result of the decrees and the judgments, the verdicts of these heavenly tribunals, these uh, heavenly courts. The Rabbani Shalom influences these, in the, these spiritual beings that of course are in charge of administering these courts. What he does is he influences them to grasp the true essential nature of each case so that obviously the judgment can be true. It's not like a heavenly court where the judges don't necessarily understand what is really going on. Unfortunately, it's far more prevalent than we think. In heaven, however, it never happens that way. The Rabbani Shalom is what's called Mashpia. He sends forth a causative force that enlightens each spiritual being in that court process to understand exactly what the true nature of the transgression is, what the motive of the person is, why the, you know, or rather what the circumstances he did it in, why that person did it now and not before, and so on. Every spiritual being that is involved in that particular case, in that heavenly court, knows exactly what really happened. And that's obviously in order to render true judgment. Not only that, but just like in a court, that ha- court proceedings that happen here, evidence is presented. No evidence is o- omitted. Evidence is presented through spiritual beings. There are spiritual beings that actually testify for the accused, their defendant. There are spiritual beings that, of course, um, um, prosecute that individual who is on trial. Evidence is presented. And the final decision of the court in that case about a certain individual regarding a certain transgression is really issued by the head of the tribunal. Now, it's interesting that God himself sometimes is the head of the court. Now, that doesn't mean that they see God. There is no entity that exists that sees God. God is the only one who sees himself. What they, when God decides to head the tribunal, must be a very interesting situation. When the king of kings, when, when, you know, when the, the, the creator himself decides to enter into his, his own courtroom, when, he, when the whole courtroom exists from, emanates from God, and God decides to sit in that courtroom, what it means is that all of a sudden the spiritual beings immediately perceive that God's presence is there in the form of the fact that he is the head judge. They don't see him, but they know that he is now presiding. They know it. And their knowledge is as if he was there. In other words, we know that somebody is presiding because we see them. When you're in Shemayim, when you're in heaven, you know that God is there, not because you see him, all of a sudden the knowledge of God's presence is given to you, and you know he's there. That is how they know. Now the question is, why does God sometimes head a court? Or rather, which kind of trials does he sit in? And the kind of trials that God sits in is those concerning Israel as a nation. Sometimes it concerns the entire planet, the entire peoples of the earth. For instance, by the Doha Floga, the uh, generation of dispersion, when they built a tower, it says, Vayered Hashem Lirois, and God descended to see. That means that God was judging. He was the head of the court. 
because the entire world was uh, was uh, about to be judged. Now, what is important to understand and what and the fact that emerges is that the merchant does not judge people based on his knowledge. Obviously, God needs no courts. God knows what will be from the first day of creation, from the first instant of time. But God does not judge the world, or he doesn't deal with the world, he doesn't direct it based on his omnipotence or on his omniscience. What he does instead is he created an entire system, a judiciary system, which is spiritual, and via that judiciary system, that is how mankind is judged. Now, why did God do this? We don't know. God doesn't need this at all. But for some reason, God decided that he wants this physical world to be run by an intermediary world called the spiritual universe. We don't know why he does not interface directly with the physical world. Why does he have to go via his spiritual beings? It is not known to us. But in any case, this is what happens. But he does not judge the world. He does not judge man's sins because of his knowledge. In other words, even though God heads the bezin or he knows about this, he allows the points of the case to be argued in front of him, as if he is not aware of what's, as if it has to be told to him. But the beings in that court know God knows everything, and they know that he knows what the real story is and what the case is. But they know that their job is to argue the case, the points of the case. This is what the xera is, this is what the decree of God is. What we see is that God does not judge man based on his knowledge. Courts judge man, not God. That is what's very important to know. That is the first incredible idea of, or rather the first chesed that we begin to perceive. That God does not judge a man even though a man has sinned, even though he knows that. A man is judged only in court, not from God's knowledge. It has to be known to the court. If a man sins and it is not known to the court, that man is not judged, even though God knows he did that sin. Very important chesed, that God does not judge a person based on his knowledge. A person can commit 1,000 sins in one day, and God will not judge him. It must be known to the court, the heavenly court, and then can that man be judged. Now, in that court system, God created a certain being called the Sutton, or the prosecutor. The job of the Sutton, or the prosecutor, he's also called the Makatreg, he who prosecutes. His job is to alert the court to sit in judgment. His purpose is what's called in legal terminology, arraignment. He brings that individual up in front of the court to be judged. He arraigns that individual, where that individual is accused and he has to stand trial. In other words, he is the one that alerts the court. If the Sutton does not alert the court, the court does not sit in judgment. That's very important to know. In other words, a man is only judged if the court sits. The court only sits if the Sutton alerts them. He's makatreg. If the Sutton is not makatreg, the court does not judge the man goes, you know, he just proceeds on his merry way without ever getting judged. Now, it's also interesting to know, of course, that the Sutton is the same individual as the Yetzirah, the uh, evil temptation, 
that psychic force that exists in man that tries to tempt an individual to do evil. And he's also the same being as the Malchamovas, the angel of death. It's all the same being. <clears throat> the Satan is the... First he tries to tempt you to do a sin. He's the Yetzirah at that point. Then when you do the sin, he prosecutes you. He alerts the court to sit in judgment about you. And then when they decide the verdict that you must get punished, he then becomes the executor of that punishment. He's got all three jobs. Okay. <clears throat> Therefore we see so far that judgment only takes place if the court sits in session concerning you. And it's not based on God's knowledge. You do not go to court even though he knows you sinned. And the second idea is that the justice, the judiciary process cannot be initiated only if the Makatre begins that process. If the Sutton is not aware of your sin, you will never be judged. It's as simple as that. Therefore, we now can begin to ask ourselves, well, if this is the case, if we know actually what goes on in heaven, now, what I'm telling you isn't superstition. It's not nice ideas. This is really what exists. If you want to take advantage of the reality, you are intelligent. If you want to be foolish and not take advantage of that reality, then you are fools. The truth is, this is really what goes on. The knowledge hopefully will allow you to adopt what's called a defensive strategy, how to beat the court system. And this is the next discussion that I want to talk about. How do we beat the court system? What is the defense strategy that we have to take? <clears throat> well, we want to know, how do we intervene in the entire judicial process? How do we control it or have access to it that we can actually uh, determine or influence what's going to happen about ourselves? Well, there are eight different strategies that you can employ. Very important to know, uh, because you can use them. And these are the defensive strategies that you can use. The first strategy is, don't sin. If you don't sin, you don't get tried. That's always the best policy. Don't do any averis. Okay? So, strategy number one is, don't be over chatoim. Don't sin. You don't sin, you will never be called, your name will never come up in the court calendar, nobody will ever give you, will ever look at you. What happens if you sin? Then the second strategy is, do tshuva, repent. Because if you repent before you get called to the court, you will never get called to the court. Because repentance will effectively block the sin from arousing the and calling you to court. In other words, do tshuva. If you do a sin, if you transgress a commandment, then do tshuva. That will effectively negate the entire judicial process. But what happens if you sin and you don't repent? What do you do next? Okay. Then the next strategy is make sure that the arena, the makatrik, the sultan, doesn't know about you. If he doesn't know about you, he is obviously not going to call you to court if he doesn't know about you. So therefore, you must employ a defensive maneuver where he will not know that you sinned. What happens if he knows you sinned? Then we begin to employ a fourth strategy. Defer the trial. In other words, you sinned, you didn't repent, 
He knows about you and he arraigns you in court. Make a motion for postponement of trial. Don't judge me today. Judge me in two years from now. That's the fourth strategy. And of course, what that means is what any lawyer will tell you. Avoid litigation. Don't go to court. The best way to avoid litigation, of course, is don't sin. Do tshuva, you avoid litigation. Avoid litigation, don't get put on the court calendar. Don't let the sutton know. If the sutton knows, then try to avoid litigation by deferring the trial. What happens if you get called to trial? Strategy number four just is not working. Then you've got another recourse. Uh, make a motion for dismissal. Now there are certain tinnus, certain kind of pleadings that you can say where the judge will say, okay, based on your pleading, I will dismiss the case. It's not a verdict, it's a dismissal of the case. So therefore the fifth strategy is dismiss the case. See if you can give a motion for dismissal. dismissal. Okay, what happens if you can't dismiss the case? So there's a, a sixth defensive strategy. And that is, you must be tried. And you better hope that you can be acquitted, that you have the merit, the schusim, the merit to walk out of there in one intact person. Of course, even though you are physically here, but you are being judged up there. So therefore, the sixth strategy is do mitzvahs. Because if you have mitzvahs, you can be acquitted. In other words, pile up as much merit as possible. But what happens if you don't have enough merits? And they try you, and they issue a verdict. They issue a judgment. What, what is there left for you to do? You still have two more strategies. Suspend the execution of the judgment. Say, wait, I know you can do such and such a thing to me, but don't do it now. Do it some other time. Give it to me a year from now. Try to suspend, make a motion that the judgment itself, the execution of the judgment, should be suspended. What happens if that doesn't work? Then we have the eighth and last strategy before you get clobbered. And what is that? Make a motion for leniency, to mitigate the judgment. Don't give me everything you said you will. Mitigate it, soften it. Give me a little now, and two months from now, give me a little then. It's much easier to bear, you know, uh, a uh, punishment if it's distributed over time than, of course, at one time. So then make a motion or ask the judge for clemency to give you that judgment, that punishment over a certain stretch of time. Those are the eight strategies that you can employ in order to interface, in order to have access to uh, the court of justice. Now, now the next thing you're going to ask me is, this sounds great. If we can interface or interact, if we have access to the judicial proceedings itself, that's incredible. That is a tremendous chesed or kindness that God gave us. How do we do it? How do we interface with the judgment itself? And I will show you that you can interface at every stage. You've got a device. You've got a judiciary instrument as a defendant to actually access each stage of the proceedings, if you want to. But it's based on a principle. <clears throat> what is that principle called? 
the principle called, and it is a real operative principle, <coughs> it is called Mido Keneged Mido, measure for measure. What does that mean? What Mido Keneged Mido means the following. It means that if you do A, you get B. That's Din, that's justice. What Mida connected Mida, if you do A, if you, if you, you get exactly what you, you uh, did, what it means is that, measure for measure, what it means is that if you do A, you get not B, but you get A in its reverse form. Mida connected Mida is really justice, but it's a specific form of justice. It's not that if you do A, you get B. If you do, if you do A, you get A reversed. It's a peculiar kind of justice. That's what Mida Keneged Mida is. And that's what Chazal say. Mida she'odem meidid bo, meididin loy. In the exact manner that an individual behaves, that is the way they behave toward him. And by the way, that corresponds to the third law of motion by Newton. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. That's what it means. That's what Mida Keneged Mida is, by the way. The third law of motion by Newton. For every action, A, there is an equal and opposite reaction. It's not B, but it's A reversed. Okay? Now, how do I do it then? How do I employ Mida connected Mida to interface with the different uh, uh, um, stages of the judi- judicial proceedings? Okay. Let's take the last first and we'll work our way backwards. The first thing, the, f- the last strategy I mentioned was to mitigate the decision. Right? Ask the Rabbanu Shalom, or the court head, whatever it is there, right? To soften the execution of the judgment. Don't do it now, do it later. How do you get them to do that? Simple. Mida connected Mida. If somebody owes you money, and you walk over to them and say, Look, you owe me $1,000. And the guy says, Look, I have no money. I just lost my job last week. Do me a favor, okay? I can't pay you back. Give me some time. So you say to the guy, okay, you owe me $1,000, pay me $300, and you'll pay me the rest later. You are what's called being marachim. You are acting in a, in, in, in a compassionate way toward this person who owns something, who, who owes something to you. Therefore, what God will say is since you did not claim justice, what was due to you, you allow this individual to pay you partially and the rest you can put off later, then I will do the same for you. That if you have to get punishment, something you owe me, right? I will put it off. I will distribute it over time. Mida connected Mida. If you are Marachim, show compassion to somebody else. In other words, somebody else uh, uh, owes something to you or did something to you. And you say, look, I will allow you to distribute it over time. We will allow our punishment to be distributed over time also. Rachmonis is the way to do it. And that's the same way you suspend. If you say to this guy, look, you don't have to pay me, I'll allow you to wait another six months. So God says, okay, the punishment that you deserve, I will give it to you six months from now. So the last two uh, uh, stages of justice, to mitigate the decision, or to temporarily suspend the execution of that decision, can be um, uh, accessed through the principle of Mida Keneged Mida by Rachmonus, Merachem. Now, what's important to understand is this idea. It is not the merit of compassion that earns you the mitigation of of, of the judgment or the suspension of the judgment. It is not that. It is the peculiarity of the concept of Mida Keneged Mida. 
you could be guilty of something, but the merit of being compassionate to somebody else would never override the decision. It would never mitigate that decision or suspend that decision. What does it is not the merit of the compassion. It is the me, the connected me, the peculiarity built into the system. That is what's important to remember. Therefore, since you are compassionate, God will be compassionate to you. And the definition of Rahmanus or compassion is a suspension of justice. That is what the definition is. And you suspend justice either by mitigating it or by suspending it for a certain amount of time. You can earn that by being a marachim, by being compassionate. But remember, it is not the merit of the compassion, it is the midah keneged midah peculiarity. It is the incredible principle of midah keneged midah which an individual has to access the system of justice. That is how he does it. That is how he is able to build up or able to make a plea for either the mitigation of the punishment or the suspension of the punishment. Okay? Very important idea to remember. Now, very good. So we know the last two, seven and eight. Be compassionate and meet the connected midor in terms of its peculiarity, its reciprocity, is a plea for the, either mitigation of, of judgment or suspension of judgment. What happens if you tried? So then you have to have mitzvahs. So therefore the strategy to try to beat the verdict, of course, is to do commandments. That is uh, number six. What happens if you tried and you reach a verdict? In order to interface with the verdict, to intervene in the verdict, the only way to do that is by having a schus, by having a merit. The only way to get merits is commandments, mitzvahs. In other words, if you want to be acquitted by court, you must do commandments. You must perform mitzvahs. So therefore, we have so far three strategies. We can mitigate the decision or suspend the decision, right, the punishment, by uh, being marachim, by being compassionate, because of the principle of midikineged midam, measure for measure. The strategy, or the rather the the proceed, the uh, stage of justice, which is the the actual verdict itself, you can access by, or rather change or intervene in by uh, doing mitzvahs. That's how you can get a schus. Okay. Let's go further in this judicial proceedings. What's even better than mitigating the decision, suspending the decision, or winning the verdict, is to make a motion for dismissal. How do we make a motion for dismissal? And the answer is, again, we must come on to the principle of Mida Keneged Mida. That principle of Mida Keneged Mida is the way God allows us to access the system. And remember, it is not the merit of what you do. It is the me, the connected me, the principle that allows you to intervene in the system. How do we make a motion for dismissal? And the answer is, you must do ma'ave amidoisav. If somebody does you an, uh, an avlo, if somebody does a wrong to you, overlook it. Pardon it. So it's me, the connected me, the you wrong God, right? You did a sin against God. Since you overlook things happening to you which are wrong to you, which you justifiably, justifiably can claim against this person, God will overlook what you did to him. To overlook your, uh, the fact that you have a claim on somebody, to forego, to be mechel, mechila, 
is the Midi based on the Midi the principle, you can intervene in the fifth area or the fifth stage of judi- judicial proceedings. You can actually make a motion for dismissal by Ma'vi Amidoisov, by foregoing or pardoning somebody's transgressions to you. Amnesty. That's how you do it. It's not, again, it's not the merit of Ma'vi Amidoisov that does it. It's the fact that with the principle of Midikineged Mido, you can use that to remove a case pending against you because of the fact that you overlooked the wrongdoing to you. Therefore, God will overlook the wrongdoing you did to him. He will dismiss the case. Now, let's proceed to the next stage, the earlier one. How do you defer the trial? We're going back. How do you defer the trial? Okay. The way you defer the trial is through the mitzvah of shofar. Blowing the horn on Rosh Hashanah. The secret of the shofar is that it, is, it enables Jews to defer the trial. That is the secret of the shofar. I'm not going to go into it. That is for a Shia and Rosh Hashanah. But I'm telling you that if you want to understand where does shofar fit or what does it do, what is the profound side or secret of shofar, the answer is that it defers the trial of Jews on Rosh Hashanah to a later time or to a different system. Now, let's go to the stage before. Let's say you sinned and you didn't do tshuva. I'm not going to address that because obviously the strategy for that is don't sin or do repentance. But let's assume you did sin and you did tshuva and you didn't do tshuva. Then obviously the best way to avoid this whole business is don't allow the sultan to arraign you in court. He should not makatrig you. He should not prosecute you or to bring your name up for the court calendar. That's the best way. He should not initiate kitrug or prosecution against you. <clears throat> but the question is, how? How do you do it? This is our most valuable strategy. Why? Because it means you will never get called to court. If you can find out the secret of kitrug, what allows the Sultan to Makatrig? You've got the most valuable device that is possible in the entire judicial system. And since it is the heavenly court that does everything in the entire world, that is obviously among the greatest knowledge you can have. And the answer to that is the strategy for making sure that the Sultan will never Makatrig against you is don't speak Lashon Hara. Now you all look at me and say, don't speak Lashon Hara? That's incredible. What does this have to do with the court system? Aha. Let us take a look at what Lashon Hara really is. I say to you that among the most profoundest idea is that if you do not speak Lashon Hara, it is impossible for the Makatrig to Makatrig on you. The Sultan has no access to you. If you do not speak Lashon Hara. If you speak Lashon Hara, he can haul you into court. And you'll ask me why. What is the logic? And the answer is very simple. Ask yourself this question. What is Lashon Hara? We define Lashon Hara as a communication that damages. What is a prosecution? What is a kitrib? When that Sultan is in court bad-mouthing you, that you did so and such and such a sin, right? What is he really saying? Lashonara. But his Lashonara is permitted. He is speaking permitted Lashonara. 
But it's still Lashon Hara. Why? Because the definition of Lashon Hara is any communication that damages. Therefore, Midah connected Midah, if you do not speak Lashon Hara, he cannot speak Lashon Hara to you. If you speak Lashon Hara, that gives him access to your entire portfolio of sins. What we begin to perceive is an incredible idea. The Sultan has no access to Bezdin except through your Lashon Hara. If you never speak Lashon Hara, he has no access to the Bezdin. If you speak Lashon Hara, he has access to all your sins. Why? Because Lashon Hara is exactly what he says against you. And you can stop him by the same principle of Midah connect Midah. In other words, if you don't speak Lashon Hara, it's not the merit of not speaking Lashon Hara that stops him from being Makatrik. It is the fact that the Kitrug stops because Midah connect Midah. You don't speak Lashon Hara, he cannot speak Lashon Hara against you. If you speak Lashon Hara, he can speak Lashon Hara about you. In other words, the Sultan has to wait for your Lashon Hara in order to arraign you into court. What we see is an incredible chesed that God did. God said the following. Number one, incredible chesedim. The first chesed is even though a man sins, I will not judge him. Only a court will judge him. Even though the court judges him, only if he gets arraigned in court can they judge him. Only if the sultan is makatrig, only through a kitrug can he be judged. He cannot be judged without a kitrug. And the third incredible chesed is that you are the individual that causes your own kitrug. In other words, just like only you can cause your punishment because you sinned, only you can actually call yourself into trial, which is an incredible idea. Man has the access, man has the control not only of his punishment, but of his own uh, trial. That is really what Lashon Hara does. The Rabbanishim allowed man to be responsible not only for his punishment, but for the very fact that man is tried by the Bezdin Shamayla. In other words, if you do not speak Lashon Hara, it is impossible to be called to court. If you do speak Lashon Hara, you will get schlepped into Bezdin. You will be arraigned in front of the court, indicted, and they will have access to your entire record, which of course nobody wants. In other words, we begin to perceive a profound idea. You can have one million chatoim or sins, as long as there's no kitrug, you walk around scot-free. As soon as you open up your mouth and say Lashonara, it's all over. That's what it means. Because of the principle of Midah Midah. The Rabbanu tied the Sultan's kitrug to your Lashonara because of Midah Midah.